interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. So I've titled this tonight, Getting All A's and Still Flunking Life. Getting All A's and Still Flunking Life. A week ago today, Friday, there was the final story in the Washington Post, a tragic moment in American history and Washington history as well because it brought to resolution in an approximate way, I suppose, uh, an awful, awful, horrific, horrific murder that took place in an upscale shopping district in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, in the northwest part of Washington about two years ago. A very high-end running store. Maybe you buy things from this kind of a store, too. Two employees were there through the day. In the evening, 9 o'clock comes. They close the store down and check each other's bags. And somebody had something in a bag that somebody else thought oughtn't be there. And and uh, a question was asked. And no one really knows except the person who did it. But over the next couple of hours, a horrible murder took place. Uh, the one employee killing the other employee. Um, in the hours of that murder, uh, the Apple store next door, sharing a wall with this store, uh, there were several employees who heard first louder screams and groans, help me, help me, please help me. And, of course, over minutes and over time, the groans and the screams became less and less loud, and finally uh, there was no more sound at all. The employees listened through the wall, there was a guard in the store who was not told about anything happening. Um, they went home. The next morning, there was yellow police tape around uh, the neighborhood and blood all over the floor of the running store. And the great question the city of Washington had to face was, what happened? What happened that night, really? And for several days, there was the defense made by the murderer that she had been attacked. They'd both been attacked, and she had been left alive, or she had you know, been wounded herself. And then her story broke down over the course of days. And finally, the question was, did you? And she did. And for the last year, year and a half or so, this story has been in our consciousness and finally in the courts in the last few weeks and finally last Friday, just last Friday, a week from today, the court said that in fact it had happened. She was the murderer. And even though there was some resolution of this awful story, the question remains for all of us, I suppose, what happened? What happened? What happened, especially in that iconically pictured Apple store, an apple of all things, really. Glitzy, glamorous in its own way, shiny, squeaky, amazing as it is, really, with all sorts of geniuses in the store, as they were, listening through the wall and saying, no. What happened, really, that night? Almost 40 years ago in New York City, in the neighborhood of Queens, there was a story of a young woman walking along the sidewalk. Her name was Kitty Genovese. Maybe you heard this story in a sociology course. But 38 people saw her being attacked and finally murdered on the streets of New York City. Uh, they did nothing. They watched and did nothing. Uh, 
And there have been books written about this, probably PhDs done on this. What is this bystander effect anyway? What happens when people actually know something and choose not to do anything about it? Three questions for you tonight. What is education anyway? What ought learning to be? And then finally, but are we becoming a wiser people? But are we becoming a wiser people? What is education anyway? One of the great studies of the history of education was by a German scholar named Werner Jaeger, a three-volume German-published series called Paideia, the Formation of Man, he called it. Paideia, the Formation of Man, and he exhaustively walks his way through the history of, of education in the world, especially the Western world, I suppose. And looking at schools and societies and always arguing the fact that there is a relationship, a dynamic relationship between what a, what a society imagines human life to be about and what kind of schools it creates to nurture the next generation to become people who live in a world like that, who ought to live in a world like that. And so the schools and societies have always been seen to have a dynamic relationship to each other. Societies, people in a world, in neighborhoods, communities, imagining we think life ought to be like this. We think life, in fact, will be like this. It should be like this. And sometimes consciously, sometimes more implicitly, maybe under the radar, really. But schools are formed over all sorts of centuries, all kinds of cultural conditions, which begin to create educational mechanisms by which, in fact, the formation of man is brought about, as we put it in the mid-20th century. The formation of the human condition, the formation of human nature. What happens, in fact, when schools begin to see human life ought to be like this? In the early 20th century, a Hungarian Michael Polanyi, bright young boy, became a bright young man, goes off to Berlin in the 1930s, and he enters into the same institute that Einstein practiced in in the 1930s in Berlin. Both very, very bright men, Polanyi a chemist, Einstein a physicist. By the late 30s, they both had the sense that something was happening in Germany that in fact was not good for them. There were conditions being created, in fact, where they were not going to be safe. And they both left Germany, Einstein, of course, coming to the U.S., and Polanyi to the United Kingdom. You know more of the story of Einstein, I suppose, but Polanyi spent those next years of the war working in a chemistry laboratory. People judging his work was on a Nobel Prize pathway. He was a brilliant laboratory chemist. But when the war was all over, Polanyi decided, in fact, strangely, surprisingly, to walk away from the laboratory. Why? Well, he had a question that, in fact, he gave the rest of his life to. And the question was this. How dare we call this an enlightenment? He said, in my own lifetime, as a European, I've watched world wars run through, crumbling the civilization which has been ours. How dare we call ourselves an enlightened people? How dare we call this an enlightened age? An enlightenment, after all? And the question, to put up point on it was this. How dare we call people who are... How, how, how is it possible, in fact, to be brilliant and to be bad at the same time? How could you have gone to the best universities of Europe and done such horrific things to other human beings? What happened here in the 20th century? How is this possible? The Polanyi 
in Birmingham, England, spent the next years of his life thinking these questions through. About ten years later, was invited to give the Gifford Lectures. He gave them. That became a book called Personal Knowledge. Personal knowledge is not another word for subjective knowledge. In fact, it's a more human way of knowing Polanyi sought to be. It's a big, thick book, and I won't go into the detail of it here for you tonight. But Polanyi offered a fundamental critique of the Enlightenment epistemological vision. Of the facts, values, Cartesian split, as it's sometimes called, or of the, the objective-subjective framework which has dominated the Enlightenment age. We know some things objectively, of course, other things, sadly, well, it's just subjective after all. And of course, that kind of split runs its way through the modern university world in so many ways. We imagine the world that way, we speak about the world that way, we take classes that way, maybe we choose our majors that way, maybe we make choices about our lives that way. Well, at least this is objectively true. Polanyi was saying, I don't think that's really the way it works, frankly. He made some simple observations. He said, well, you see, as a chemist, in my own experience as a chemist in the laboratory, the viewer is always viewing, he said. The viewer is always viewing. I don't leave myself at the door of the laboratory when I walk into the laboratory. I bring myself into this. Um, Polanyi began to think through the question of responsibility in relation to learning, in relation to knowing. In fact, he began to argue that the truest kind of learning is always a learning that leads us to more responsibility. In fact, when we begin to see knowledge as something less than responsibility, it's a truncated version of knowledge. The knowledge, in fact, implies responsibility. If I know, then I'm implicated in and by what I know. Walker Percy is somebody who also weighed in on this question in the 20th century. Walker Percy became one of the major novelists of the late 20th century in American culture. Uh, his books began to be always reviewed widely and well by those who were making comments about the important books to be read. There was an apocalyptic theme to his work, The Last Gentleman, The Thanatos Syndrome, The Second Coming. He was always asking questions like this. What about this murderous, mechanized 20th century? What happened to make it the murderous, mechanized 20th century? Why are human beings so sad in the 20th century? Was one of his questions. Polanyi, Percy himself, was raised in the South, Mississippi. His father and grandfather both committed suicide in a tragic generational plague upon his family. His whole life he wondered, shall I someday too? He went off to, the, to Columbia University to study medicine, not to become a family practice doctor, for, actually, but to become a scientist doctor. He wanted to become a pathologist. He contracted tuberculosis along the way, and so was sent off to a sanatorium, actually upstate New York for a while. Helped you get better, Walker. He didn't. I tried again the next year, and the dean finally said, you're going to have to leave medicine because you can't be a tuberculosis carrier and practice medicine. So at age 25, 26, 27, he finds himself, you know, not only having lost his father, uh, but lost the sense of calling, the sense of direction for his life. He begins to enter into what could only be called a period of existential anguish and despair. And somehow in the course of these next years of his life, he reading and reading, thinking and thinking, writing and writing, he finds his way into a novel that becomes the uh, winner of the National Book Award for Fiction called The Movie Goer. And it entered him into a pantheon of American writers from which he never left, actually. But his questions were always about what does it mean to be a human being in this world. 
One of his books is called Love in the Ruins, another apocalyptic theme, Love in the Ruins. And Percy has his character, Tom Moore, fictionally named, of course, but he's a descendant of Sir Thomas Moore from the Man for All Seasons story from generations ago. And Tom Moore is a lapsed Catholic. He's a brilliant scientist. He works in a clinic which actually explores the meaning of love. Uh, funny as that might sound to you. Um, Tom Moore invents a machine. He calls it the Qualitative Quantitative Ontological Lapsometer. Now, if you are a student of history, of the Enlightenment age in particular, think about it again. The qualitative, quantitative, ontological lapsometer. And in the narrative, when Tom Moore is asked, so what's this lapsometer do? He says, well, of course, it measures lapses. Where? In the human soul is the response. Well, here's Percy poking away, probing one more novel after one more novel at this question. So what does it mean to be an enlightened person? What's it mean to be a person who knows about the world? What's it mean to be a person who's an educated person in the world? In this last of all the novels, The Thanatos Syndrome, he has uh, Tom Moore comes back for the second time in a novel, and he discovers that some enlightened bureaucrats in his part of the country have put chemicals in the water to make people be nicer. I saw a story in the paper this last week that was a lot like that, actually. Um, a decision made by somebody else somewhere, and it wasn't fiction. Um, Tom Moore, who was a psychiatrist, begins to meet people in his office, and he thinks, well, there's something going on here. There, People are just different than they used to be. And the great question which Percy poses to Moore and to all the rest of us is, so what's Tom Moore's responsibility now, knowing what he knows? Will he be responsible? What will responsibility look like? In all of his stories, in all sorts of different ways, he's asking this question, what's the relationship between knowledge and responsibility? You see, when he says in this book, The Second Coming, that a person can get all A's and still flunk life. That description really is a warning lurking around everyone's heart, yours and mine. That we can get all A's and still flunk life. We, in fact, could be highly educated people and really miss the point. We can, in fact, stumble our way through life sadly and even tragically, having gone to the very best of universities, as Polanyi wondered in his own life. How is it possible to be brilliant and bad at the same time? How could you be an Apple Store genius? Listening to a cry for help through the wall of your store and choose to walk away. What ought learning to be? If I have a favorite story, maybe I have a few favorite stories. One of my all-time favorite stories is a novel by Kain Patak, the novelist from New York City writing a whole series of books about Jewish life in the mid-20th century. One of the best is a book called The Chosen. And if we had a lot of time together, I in fact would probably put up on this big screen a scene from The Chosen of these two Jewish boys living in Brooklyn in the, in the 1940s. One the son of a Hasidic rabbi, and the other the son of a Jewish political activist. They butt heads and hearts and eschatological visions. Who are Jews to be in the world and who is God in the world and what's it mean to be faithful to the Jewish tradition? The one son, the ascetic rabbi's son, has been raised in silence for, his, for most of his life. 
As we read him in the story, he's in his late teens, I suppose. But he's been raised in silence. His father was the ascetic rabbi of the rabbis. If you were to drive through Brooklyn today, you'd still see these black hats, these long black coats, these long sideburns and curls, and you'd think maybe you were still back in the 1940s, or maybe back in the year 1600 in, you know, in Poland. But here they are in Brooklyn in the 1940s. And this young man has been raised in silence by his father. You think, why silence? We don't understand this until the very last scene of the film, or the last chapters of the book. The father tells this to his son. When you were just four, I dawdled you on my knee. We played, and I tickled you, and we laughed together, and we had an uproariously good time together. I loved you, and I delighted in you. But when you got to be five years old, you began to read, and I thought, so what happened here, my son? Master of the universe, the rabbi says. I didn't want a son like this to be my son. A son who has such a huge, huge head in his... In his, uh, in his he's a giant, giant, giant brain. I need a son who has a great heart for my son. I watched you reading these books and you'd be so proud of reading your books and they'd be about something sorrowful or sad and you were proud of yourself for reading a book like this at age five and six and I thought, I don't need this for my son. And so he draws upon a generation-long practice of the ascetic community as horrific as it might sound to all of us in this room to decide to no longer speak father to son as happens in most families in the world, but to raise his son in silence. I've sometimes maybe imagined it to be the pedagogy of silence. The pedagogy of silence. And while everything in me as a father of five children would say, never, 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 I'm also sobered by the question that Kaim Patak raises in the story. How do we teach people to take into their hearts the suffering of the world? How do we teach people actually to hear what's going on in the world? How do we teach people that we love and that we long for to actually to, to pay attention to things that really matter in the world? And while we might fundamentally reject the ascetic practice here and say, it would never be like that in my family, I think the harder question for all of us is this one. So what do we do? How do we educate? What, is, what ought education to be like anyway? In this Hebrew tradition, which the Hasidic practice represents in some ways, there's this long, long understanding of knowledge, which goes back to the very beginning of the books of the Bible. Knowledge is like this. When you have knowledge of, you have responsibility to. And that means you have care for. And so if you have knowledge, then you care. If you know, then you care. And if you don't care, then you don't really know. Hear it again. If you have knowledge of, it means you have responsibility to. It means you have care for. And so the very idea of knowing works its way out in, then I care about. If I know about, I care about. And you see the very idea that is so much a part of the enlightenment, self-consciousness. Yes, 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 I know. But I have no interest in that at all. I don't care about that at all. 
letting ourselves off the moral hook of responsibility by saying, well, yes, I know, but so what? You see, in the Hebrew vision, that kind of knowledge is an impossibility. Because, you see, knowledge implies responsibility, which implies care. The Proverbs put it this way, the righteous man cares about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Written into the very words is this Hebrew word yada, to have knowledge. It's the same knowledge, the same Hebrew word yada, which says Adam knew Eve his wife. Somehow sexual intimacy, deep personal connection, the most personal kind of responsible love is the same kind of responsible love that's manifest in the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. You see, in this Hebrew vision, if you knew, then you had to be responsible and it had to work out then in the way you lived, in what you cared about. There's a profound relationship between this Hebrew vision and the Christian vision. In this Christian vision, this gospel-driven vision, which Jesus comes to incarnate, in fact, this Hebrew understanding of knowledge, where, in fact, if you know, then you love. And if you don't love, then you don't know, actually, at all. To make the bridge here, Abraham Hesher was clearly one of the most important scholars of the Hebrew tradition in the 20th century. His book, The Prophets, puts it this way. That this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when this God knows, he steps in. When this God knows, he responds. And his lament through the prophetic tradition, through each of the prophets, was this again and again. How dare you say you know me, and yet not care about the things I care about? How could it be you'd say you belong to me, and yet not care for the things that I care about? And you see, it's that disconnect that's at the heart of the prophetic critique. And Heschel puts it this way, this Hebrew vision of yada, of knowing, runs its way through the prophetic literature. Again and again, when God knows, God cares. When God sees, God responds. When God hears, God responds to what he hears. He feels what he knows. And so you see, when Jesus, who comes as the incarnation of God himself, says, the word has become flesh and lives for a while among you. It is this very idea, in fact, that words being made flesh in the lives of people day after day, year by year. If I would say Chaim Patak captures you know, this for me in the literature of the Jewish tradition, one of the best writers in my mind who captures this in his own way is Wendell Berry. Maybe you know his work. A Trinitarian Christian person who is also called by those who watch these things the most prophetic writer in America today, the most serious essayist writing in America today. And somebody who has that deep commitment to a certain cosmology, to a certain understanding of the way the universe is, having a prophetic edge to his work. What's it about always? Novels, essays, poetry? He's always pressing this point. That in fact, if we casually walk away from people and place, we lose something crucial to our humanity. 
And so he imagines a community on the banks of the Kentucky River, the Port William membership, he calls it. In probably 10, 15 novels by now, he's told story upon story over the course of a century about people, about mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and children and barbers and, and friends and farmers who are all people who live out a life together over the course of generations in a century. And while we might enjoy these stories, they're not romantic. There are stories of tragedy and heartache and sometimes murder and malice. Even as they are stories also of deep, deep human kinship, profound goodness. And somehow both glory and shame written into the stories page by page by page. What's his point? It is when we casually walk away from relationships... It's impossible to see ourselves as responsible. He's not saying we all should live on farms in Kentucky. That's a misreading of his work, I would say. I've even asked him that question. He said that. Um, you don't understand, really. What he's arguing, in fact, is this. But be careful out there. Watch yourself. Make sure that when you begin to enter into life in the major cities of the world, that you don't lose touch with people and place. Because these are the contours of your humanity. These will allow for human flourishing or not. So in fact, when we take up a life as we will in the world, Barry's only point is this. Central to your humanity are people and place. Don't forget that. You see, it's only when we begin to know people and know places, to see ourselves as in relationship to people with faces and histories and kinship and obligations and responsibilities, that we begin to see ourselves as, in fact, responsible for them and to them. The great awful face of life in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. is this one. You can live so anonymously. I don't know you. You don't know me. Why should I care about you? I don't know who your uncle is. I don't know who your mother was. I don't know who your children are. Why would I care about you? And you see, it's only as we see ourselves as in relationship that we are able to see ourselves as responsible. It's a deeply written dynamic of human life under the sun. And these visions of what it means to know, how it gets worked out, in life, are central, I would argue, to this Hebrew and Christian vision of knowing, of what education and learning are all about. It's a responsibility born of love, to love what we know, to care about what we know, to be implicated in what we know. About three years ago, I was at a restaurant in northwest Washington when I was a group of people, most of them Chinese human rights writers, lawyers, professors in Washington for a week. I was placed up to somebody who couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Chinese. So we were talking through a translator. I've had a long interest in my life in the work of Václav Havel, the Czech playwright, become prisoner, become president, who died a couple of months ago now. Havel's thinking has shaped my, my thinking in profound and far-reaching ways. I'm talking to this man named Yu Zhe. And Yuge tells me through the translator that he is the translator of Havel's work into Chinese. My eyes pick up, I think, really, Yuge? Havel for China. He begins to go on about why Havel's work means so much for the Chinese people. 
Well, I go back that night to my house and I write a man whose name was Jim Hoagland. And for many years he was perhaps the senior foreign affairs voice in the Washington Post. Uh, a much respected voice in the city. Um, not a particularly partisan voice on the page of the op-ed section of the Post. Not left, not right. Years before, I'd actually written him one day, and I'd said, you know, I read you day by day, and I just wonder who you are. But let me say, if I never know that, I want to, want to thank you for the voice you have in the city of Washington, because you, are, you refresh me. You renew my own vision of what it means to be a citizen of the world. You remind me of Václav Havel, I said in the letter to him, who had some vision of actually of truth against not truth, about justice against not justice. Um, and I want to simply thank you. I got a long letter back that day from Hoagland saying, well, surprise, but you you give me the courage to write my editorial for for Sunday's paper on some larger public good question. And I didn't know whether anyone read it, but at least you will. Um, And so we began to be friends. I wrote Jim that night and I said, Uger here is here in town. I don't know him, but I have been reading about him. He was the Havel translator to Chinese. Would you like to talk to him this week? Jim said, I'd love to talk to him. And so we met together a few days later. And we had a long conversation, which became an op-ed the next week. And if you Googled Jim Hoagland and Uger, you could find his own piece on on that conversation we had. Two weeks ago, the Washington Post reported that Uge was back in Washington. And I called him and talked to him through his wife principally because he doesn't speak English very well. He wants to hold on to his own native tongue. And why? Well, Jim Hoagland put it like this to me. I'd like to talk to this person because in my world of international journalists, Uge is seen to be the most courageous writer in China. I'd love to talk to him. And so... We talked, and I've been reading him, and we've been talking since then, and Uge is back in town, and the next weekend there was this long article uh, in the Post again, an op, an op, an, the main editorial two weeks ago on Sunday, of Uge being back in Washington in America. Why does all this matter? How does it relate to the way education ought to be, to see ourselves as responsible for history? Well, put it like this to you. In the conversation with Jim that day, Usually they are a translator between us all. Jim, brilliant, probing journalist as he was, asking UJ questions about you know, China today and about the world and UJ's comments about being one of the leaders of the post-TNMN generation in China. And he said this, Among my generation, we are becoming Christians those who were given intellectual leadership to this post-TNMN generation in China. Jim, who I had no idea what his own heart was like, what his own beliefs about God and the world were like at all, actually, just zeroed in and asked question upon question upon question. And Uge answering said something like this. Well, you see, many of my generation, of course, we are historically Confucian in Chinese society. And some look at that and say, okay, said, many of my generation, of course, still are finding jobs in the party, though no one believes in the party at all anymore. But it's a good job to have. said, some of my generation look at you in the West and think, well, maybe it's a capitalist vision for the future of China. But he says, without a moral foundation for the capitalism, we don't want that for China. We don't want what you become. 
that we see something actually about this Christian vision of reality, of history, of the human condition, of fact of what responsible life might look like in the world. And we want something like that. Now, we could talk about all that for hours and hours to come, people, if you wanted to tonight and tomorrow, the next day and beyond, really. Jim, in his op-ed, put it this way two weeks later. He said, in my profession as journalists, we're skeptical of the idea that faith has anything to do with life at large, with politics in particular. Our editors are even more skeptical, he said. They resist the idea completely. So uh, you need to know that's true when I tell you about my conversation with UJ this past week, who made this argument to me. This is what he said and why. What's impressed me in watching Uge over the last several years is this. You see, he has stepped into the complexity of his own time in history. Horribly so. If you Googled his name, you'd see long interviews with, you know, under torturous conditions by the Beijing police. Uh, somehow coming through it all with a commitment actually for the future of China. In the very same year of this conversation with UJ, I was invited to give a lecture at the Beijing Film Academy, which is really the main film school in, in China. And I had to sign a statement before I went, uh, promised not to say anything counter-revolutionary, which I did, thinking it through some, and agreed I would do that. Before I went, I got a letter from the inviter saying, we haven't yet seen a film in China. It's being shown in the U.S. It's called Amazing Grace. Would you please bring that with you? <laughs> Maybe you've seen that film, the story of William Wilberforce and his life, and his protest against the British government, his protest against the slave trade, his work to abolish the slave trade over the course of the years of his life. I happened to have a friendship with people in Walden Media, and I asked them for a copy. They sent a whole box of films to me, and I took it with me in the, a suitcase, hoping I wouldn't get put in prison for doing so. And, um, but got to the film school and showed this film early on in the day, trembling, actually, as I was showing the film, thinking, but I promise not to say anything counter-revolutionary. <laughs> If you know the story, of course, it's a deeply counter-revolutionary story. For God's sake, Wilberforce works against the British government and its policies and its laws and its history. So I'm watching this story play out in this room, not unlike this one, with hundreds of graduate students in film with their professors, and wondering, what are you thinking as you see this story told you now? I then gave a lecture in the afternoon on good stories and good societies, arguing, in fact, that if there's a harmonious society to come in the future, which the political leaders of China speak about, it will only be because there are good stories being told. And you are going to be the purveyors, the creators of these good stories for China's future in the 21st century. You who are the cinematic storytellers for China. Well, of course, it begs the question, what is a good story? And so I quoted Walker Percy again, and I said, well, in one of his essays, he puts it this way, that bad books always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. I made the transition to bad films always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. And talked for quite a while about some of their own best filmmakers and films, which I thought reflected a wrestling with the truth of the human condition. 
when I finished with the translator beside me, having done all of my sentences in, you know, in Chinese, I wonder if anybody heard what I had to say. There was some silence for maybe 15 seconds, and then a young woman raised her hand. It was already the best of all questions, and then somebody else did, and somebody else did, and somebody else did, and maybe for 45 minutes or an hour, we just talked and talked and talked about these great, great questions of how do you find out the truth of the human condition? How would a story be told like that on film? So here I am in the course of really a year of my life talking to Uge about Havel, and China, about these Chinese film students wrestling with their own vocations, what would it mean to know what China needs and might be like, in fact, to step into it with a sense of responsibility for shaping China in the 21st century. There's a lot more about China in my life, which maybe we could talk about sometime. I simply want to say this. In Yuzhe's life, in the lives of these students that I've met, what I've seen are people who, who see the complexity and the messiness and the hurtfulness, sometimes the injustice and the evil, and this the incredible bureaucracy of a complex modern society, and deciding, in fact, to step in, to see themselves as implicated in the way things turn out. Well, what a vision it might be, really. But you see, in the world of the 21st century, we also live in what James Billington called the info-glut society. The info-glut society. Billington's the librarian of Congress, and he tells this story about being the steward of our nation's library and its resources intellectually and the books and papers and journals, and says what a bureaucratic challenge it is for me, for us, to handle the flow we get week by week, month by month. But as he says, as much of a challenge as it is for us to do that, even harder, more difficult, is the challenge for all the rest of you. For you, for America. What are you going to do with all of this, he asks. You see, in this info-glut society, as he names it, the harder question is, are we becoming a wiser people because of access to so much information? Is that true of you? Is that true of you? If we had more time, I could show you U2's MTV version of the song Numb. Maybe you know that, 15 years ago now. Perceptive, prescient, poking away at where we would be going in the next 10, 15 years. I feel numb, I feel numb, I feel numb, I feel numb. And the edge is watching a television screen, which is not really ever shown on the, on the video. But the flickering translucence on its face, saying, I feel numb, I feel numb. And then Bob and the rest of the band began to come in and sing the song, these prophetic words, too much is not enough. Too much is not enough. Think about that. Too much is not enough. When you've got your iPhone in your pocket, and you imagine yourself all day long connected to people all over the face of the earth, and you want more and more and more. Has somebody else, in fact, emailed me in the last 30 seconds? You know, is there more to look at here? More to be irresponsible about? Because I didn't, didn't respond to the last one. I've got 1,800 emails unresponded to in my account here. I haven't yet responded to those yet, and yet I want more. I want more. I want more. Too much is not enough. And you see, Billington's question for us, I think, is an awfully important question. Having access to so much knowledge as we have it in our world today, 
unprecedented access to knowledge. Is the promise of the Enlightenment true? Knowledge is power? There was a poetic response, actually, in those early days of the Enlightenment. But a poet who put it this way, He who knows the most mourns the deepest. He who knows the most mourns the deepest. And you see, when you think about what it means to be alive right now and to know so much, and in fact, at the same time, to be tempted by this perennial indifference, because I can't take it all in. Are we becoming a wiser people after all? One of the voices I've most been taught by is a woman who was a philosopher in France in the middle 20th century. Simone Weil was her name. Born to a Jewish family in Paris, at age 10 she told her parents, I'm a communist. I've had five very gifted children in my family. Of course, they're very bright children, each one. No ten-year-old I've yet known has said to me, I'm a communist. Um, Maybe you know people like that. I just don't really. But Simone Ray seriously proposed that to her parents at age 10. For the next 10 years of her life, off to the Sorbonne eventually to do philosophy. The top of her class at her graduation. She had never yet met a communist. Trotsky came into Paris that summer. She thought, finally, a flesh and blood communist. After one evening with Trotsky, she walked away from both Paris and her communism. Why? Well, the next morning, as she walks out of town, she said this. He loved people, the idea of humanity, but you know, talking to him, he didn't really care about anybody. And so disillusioned she was by Trotsky himself that she walked away, but kept at this vision among the factory workers and the farmer, farmers of France over the next six, seven, eight years of life. Taking up a life among the proletariat as she saw, saw them, caring for things that ought to be cared about, not quite sure where it would all lead her. Somehow in the strange graces of God, she finds herself slowly, slowly coming to, as she put it, the God who cries. The God who cries. And she begins to rethink her own life in the world, and in fact, who she is and who God is, and what it means to care about things that are worth caring about. Over the next year, she wrote essays, brilliant essays. One of the best of all the essays is one which I will give you tonight, and it's got an awkward title, but it would be worth all of you reading. It's called, On the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. It goes on way too long, really, but hear it again. On the right use of school studies with a view to the love of God. And in this essay, she explores what it means to be a student. To be a student who actually takes studies seriously. To be somebody, actually, who takes studies seriously because he or she really loves God. And she's asking a very important question of this, and she's wondering, so how do you actually pursue studies rightly? Rooting her thinking in the parable we call the Good Samaritan, which begins with a person who has gotten all A's and who's flunked life one more time. This expert in the law, of course, was somebody who had memorized the law after all. He had memorized the law, but he missed the point of the law. He'd mastered the letter of the law, but he missed the meaning of the law. 
He was an expert, of course, who asked a question. And Jesus won't play a game with this expert of the law. And he parries, he responds and says, well, what do you say? You're the expert. And finally, back and forth, back and forth, and we have these straightforward words, well, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, well, do this then. You go do that, expert that you are. The man wants to justify himself, is how Luke writes the story. To justify oneself means what? I want to push back away. I don't want these words to come so close to my life. To justify myself is with my wife, it is before I've even blinked my eyes, to say to her, it wasn't really like that, you see. Because I don't want her, in fact, to make me seem like less than I want to be seen. And so I justify myself to my wife, protesting, well, you see, it wasn't really like that after all. I'm really a better person than you thought after all. I didn't really mean it like that after all. To justify oneself is to deceive oneself quite profoundly. And this man wants to justify himself. He wants, in other words, maybe in language of the 21st century, he wants to deconstruct the word neighbor. He wants to abstract it, to say, let's talk about neighbor out here. And Jesus won't go there. And he says to him, well, let me tell you a story instead. And it's a very simple story, and you all know it. About two men on their way to Jericho, they see a man beaten up on the side of the road. They have eyes, but they do not see. They see, but they have no response to make. They know, but they don't do. And surprise of surprises, you know, this Samaritan man walks by and says, a neighbor, huh? And he picks up the man and takes him to the inn and cares for him. And the end of the story is very quickly offered to us by Jesus. And the question is, well, who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. And Jesus essentially says, well, then go apprentice yourself to the Samaritan then. Go be like him. Simone Weil, in telling this story, says, you see, the Samaritan had learned to pay attention. She, he learned to pay attention. She says that's really at the heart of what she argues is sacramental learning, sacramental study. When you begin to see, in fact, the truest truths of the universe begin to touch the ordinary things of your life and mine. These glories of God, in fact, with the very ordinary human yearnings and cries of the human heart. That's what sacramental learning is about, Simone Weil argues. It's in fact all bound up with this idea of paying attention, of learning to pay attention. One of the most prominent literary critics of the last century said this about Simone Weil. She's come to seem more and more a special example of sanctity for our time. The outsider as saint in an age of alienation. Our kind of saint. In eight scant years, the young Frenchwoman, whom scarcely anyone had heard of before her sacrificial death in exile at the age, has come to possess the imagination of many in the Western world. Catholic and Protestant, Christian and Jew, agnostic and devout, we've all turned to her with profound conviction that the meaning of her experience is our meaning, that she really is ours. The last night of her life, she died way too early. She wrote in her journal these words on the last line of her journal, the night she died. The most important task of teaching is to teach what it means to know. 
The most important task of teaching is to teach what it means to know. It's a good word for all of us, human beings as we are, even a community of learning as you are here at Cornell University. It is, after all, the most important task of teaching, teaching what it means to know. But I'm going to give you, as the last word, this man whose name shapes the vision of life and learning that is at the heart of the Chesterton House, G.K. Chesterton himself. Finding his own way into the modern world over a hundred years ago, a young adult as he was with his own honest questions about what was to be believed and what sense it made of the world in which he lived. He longed for more coherence, for a way to live that connects heart with mind, belief with behavior, knowing with doing. He put it this way, You say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before catch, sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In his own way, Chesterton, of course, embodies this vision of sacramental learning, of sacramental living, of sacramental study, of a sacramental vocation, of a sacramental calling, of a sacramental life in the world, of somebody who actually sees where heaven and earth touch each other in playing, in dancing, in sketching, going to the opera, watching the pantomime, in fact, before I dip the pen into the ink. What's education about anyway? What's it mean for us to know that we might see things as they really are? That we might see the sacramental character of all of life and of learning? That we might learn to learn in such a way that we know what we love? That we love what we know? And because we do, that we might see ourselves as responsible for history, implicated in the way things turn out? Yes, that that might be true for every one of us.